This is I Was There, gigs that changed the world. In this large field, this raceway, as darkness fell, the mood in the crowd was restless. There were these incidents of maybe some pushing and shoving and fistfights. People started building fires. There were fires all over the place. And when they started throwing on these oily fence posts and the oily smoke filled the air, it really sort of did become a scene right out of hell. Episode 3, The Rolling Stones at Altamont, December 6th, 1969. This is Joel Selvin. I'm the author of Altamont, The Rolling Stones, The Hell's Angels, and the inside story of Rock's Darkest Day. I came to work as a pop music writer at the San Francisco Chronicle shortly after Altamont. So I've been around the lore and the people who produced the concert. And every time I drove to Los Angeles and I turned off the highway to get on Highway 5, I'd look over to my right and see the old abandoned speedway. So it's not something that was ever very far from my mind. And I wanted to tell the Altamont story from beginning to end, it never really had been told, and I wanted to see the story out in the open and in the light. I wanted to know the names of the Hell's Angels and who they were. I didn't want them just written off as the Hell's Angels. I wanted to know who made the decisions, who called the shots, and how it ended up being the horrible catastrophe it was. Langdon winner. I went as an audience member, but eventually, after the events of the festival, I joined in writing a Rolling Stone feature story where people related their experiences at the concert. At the time of the rock festival, I was in graduate school, but also writing occasionally for Rolling Stone music reviews primarily. So a group of friends uh, were quite excited by the announcement that there would be a Woodstock-style free rock concert featuring the Rolling Stones, so we were ready to go. I'm Bill Owens. I, at the time, worked for the Livermore Independent as a photographer. I went to study photography at San Francisco State, and so the Livermore Independent was my first job. You gotta remember, 1968 was a terrible year in America, and I was convinced we needed a revolution because of the Vietnam War. We'd lost 50,000 young men my age, and I was still eligible for the draft. So I was very, very scared. It was a very terrible time, and I'd been mugged on campus twice. So I learned to run from both the protesters and, and the police. So when I went out to Altamont, I had had some experiences being around crowds and riots, but this was a rock and roll music concert, so I didn't have any expectations. At the time, in places like Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, there were frequently uh, free rock concerts featuring often San Francisco bands. In this case, the site was across the bay in the hills east of San Francisco, quite a long trek, but the lineup of bands was quite wonderful. Santana, Jefferson Airplane, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, a number of other bands, and of course the Rolling Stones, which I'd never uh, seen in person before, so I was quite excited about going to this outdoor concert. The Stones are responsible for calling all the shots. They controlled everything. It was the Stones' touring parties management that 
screwed up the San Francisco location. And then it was the Stones touring party management that insisted on moving forward with the concert. You gotta understand, Jagger had announced a date for this concert the morning after the Golden Gate Park location vanished. So he announces that we're going to do this concert somewhere near San Francisco. We don't know where. They had trouble finding a venue for the concert. The Rolling Stones said they would play for free. It was widely advertised, but the various venues for the concert itself kept changing. And eventually it ended up at a dirt track raceway to the east up in the hills. Few people knew where it was. Then they found this raceway 60 miles north of San Francisco, the Sonoma, the Sears Point Raceway. And they started building a stage there. But the corporate owner of the Sonoma Raceway stepped up and made some demands that the Stones found loathsome. Again, the Stones found loathsome and refused to negotiate. And at four o'clock in the afternoon on Thursday before the concert, supposed to start at noon, so what's that, like 36 hours away, that's when the guy that owned the Altamont Speedway steps up and says, you can do it at my place. So that's how last minute it was. I read in one of the papers that you've been giving a free concert in San Francisco. Uh, we are doing a free concert in San Francisco when? on December 6th. And uh, uh, the location is not Golden Gate Park, unfortunately, but it's somewhere adjacent to it, which is a bit larger. The event happened on a Saturday, so I had to take a day off from my regular job with permission of my editor. And all they said is come back with a photograph for the newspaper, which we would publish that following Wednesday. And so I had two friends who were at Associated Press in San Francisco. They called me and said, we want you to come with us and cover Altamont. And I said, fine, what's Altamont? Well, it's the Rolling Stones putting on this concert. I said, sure, I'll be there. So that morning they showed up and I had a motorcycle, so I followed them out to the concert site. And so as we got close to the site, the little country road got frozen up and I abandoned my motorcycle and walked in. Nobody quite knew, at least the people that I knew, didn't know where Altamont Raceway was. So we set off, uh, oh, about uh, 10 in the morning, got in the car and drove out, parked some distance away. So we had to walk maybe an hour, an hour and a half to get to the concert site itself. But eventually we got there and put down our blankets and got our food together and waited for the music to start. I knew where to go and where to stand to take the right photograph because of my experiences at San Francisco State covering anti-war protests. There was sound towers on the left to the right of the stage, and I just walked over with my camera gear, climbed up to the top of the tower where there's a piece of plywood, and I sat there out of sight of everybody so I knew not to be in the way of whatever's going to happen, to take the high ground and have a bird's-eye view. But I just sat there waiting and watched as the scene unfolded right underneath me. Of course, the whole nature of the enterprise, this vast crowd being brought out to this hillside, literally in the middle of nowhere without any supporting infrastructure, just asking for trouble. Uh, actually, I brought a quart of water and peanut butter jelly sandwich so I had something to eat because there was no food, there's no toilets, there's no seating. 
and you got a couple hundred thousand people sitting on the ground out there. It was a hazy day, and it was early December, and the weather in Northern California can get quite cool. So as the day progressed, um, people were trying to have a good time. People had brought food, there was lots to eat, people were passing around bottles of soda and so forth. So there was a strong attempt to have a good time. But right from the beginning, there were signs of scuffles around the stage. One of the more pervasive atmospheres that attended the Altamont concert was this feeling of dread and anger and violence. And I'm up on the tower, so when I take the picture, I got this guy with no clothes on walking out through a sea of maybe 10,000 people. It's an incredible photograph of somebody who just took off all their clothes and just took off through a sea of people. No pathway, just where's this guy going? God only knows. There was very poor security right around the stage. So evidently the Rolling Stones had asked the Hells Angels to come and essentially keep people away from the stage. And when the fist fight started, when the pushing and shoving started, there was really not adequate preparation to sort of bring things back under control. Originally there was a little rope there to keep people back. And the stage was only about four feet high, maybe five feet. And the crowd kept pushing forward. And you got a couple hundred thousand people, as far as the eye can see, it's just a sea of people. There's no pathways, there's no walkways, there's nothing but people in all directions. I was some distance away, not at all near the stage, so you couldn't see, from my perspective, exactly what was happening. But there were just these recurring waves of disorder. People yelling, stop, stop, cut it out. And so the crowd is kind of pushing towards the stage, and people then tried to climb up on the stage to dance. Well, the Hells Angels, of course, came equipped with pool cues to beat the out of people. Basically, they just pushed them off the stage, and they'd fall back in the crowd. Some people would try once or twice. So the front of the stage was all these San Jose guys of the Hells Angels, and they were trouble. One of the guys that I talked to came from the San Francisco chapter, I asked him about the pool cues. You know, what's with the pool cues? And he just looked disgusted. He said, pool cues are for chumps. You know, they break easy. You can't get in close to somebody. They don't really do the damage. He says, if you really want to get into that situation, you should use tire chains. The fat guy was one of the people that took off all of his clothes to get up on the stage to dance. Well, that didn't go over very well, so the angels jumped off the stage with a pool cues and smashed the out of him. I always wondered what happened to him. Someone told me he climbed underneath the stage and laid there all day. Somebody came up the tower with a big giant pipe wrench and threatened to kill me. So I thought, oh, this is not going to be like in the movies where there's a fight and I end up the winner and the guy falls off the tower. No, somebody threatens you with a big wrench uh, <laughs> to get off the tower and you flash your press credential. He's not interested. He didn't have any credentials. He just didn't want me up there. So it wasn't even like they were good thugs. They were just a bunch of punks and they were on drugs and they were causing problems. Hell's Angels, in the circumstances they found themselves, behaved exactly like Hell's Angels. One of the bands, The Grateful Dead, 
was supposed to be there to perform. By the time they got there, the scene had deteriorated to such an extent that they didn't even get up on stage and play. Marty Ballin, the lead singer of the airplane, he got knocked unconscious by a Hell's Angel on stage. And then when he came to backstage, the Hell's Angel beat him up again. That was a giant signal as to who controlled the stage. Hey, man, I'd like to mention that the Hell's Angels just uh, smashed Marty Ballin in the face and knocked him out for a bit. I'd like to thank you for that. Wait, you are. Is this on? You're Damn talking it. to me, I'm going to talk to I'm you. I'm talking to you, man. I'm talking to the people that hit my lead singer You're in the head. You're talking to my people. Right. Now, let me tell you what's happening. And then, of course, as the evening proceeded, there was the uh, stabbing murder of a young African-American near the stage. The Rolling Stones came on after the sun had gone down, and the air in Northern California can get quite cold. So late afternoon, early evening, people started building trash fires, just burning things. And then what a number of them did was to go pull up fence posts, which are soaked with creosote, which is an oily substance. So you had these rather large fires beginning to burn and the smell of the oil filled the air. And so after a while, especially while the Rolling Stones were performing, the uh, scene was like the painting by Hieronymus Bosch, the harrowing of hell. Everybody seems to be ready. Are you ready? For the first time in three years, the greatest rock and roll band in the world, the Rolling Stones! If you look at that painting, you get a, uh, a foreshadowing of Altamont on that day. So people went to have a good time in a kind of uh, Woodstock paradise, but particularly during the Rolling Stones set, it was really fires and smoke. It was a, a disaster. They gave a pretty good performance, and they did some of their most aggressive, hard-rocking songs in the set. But they were repeatedly stopped by commotions right in front of them on the stage. And I'll try and stop it. Hey, hey, people, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, come on now. That means everybody just cool out. Where I was sitting at some distance, you just got the feeling that the mood of the music, the enjoyment of being there with the crowd was repeatedly disrupted. Is there anyone there that's hurt? Huh? Everyone all right? Okay. All right. I think we're cool. We can go. We always have something very funny happens when we start that number. There was somebody there in our group who had a camera and took photos. And the photos of all of us, there was a group of about five or six people. We were looking, you know, kind of downtrodden and worried and perhaps even angry. In the movie, there's a very wrenching scene of Meredith Hunter's girlfriend, Patty Bredehoff, sobbing and being comforted by a Red Cross worker as they pushed the gurney carrying Meredith's dead body past her. 
And that movie then cuts to a piece of footage of a helicopter taking off and flying away in the sky, as if to suggest that Meredith Hunter's body was aboard the helicopter. Meredith Hunter's body was never on a helicopter. That gurney was pushed over to the office of the racetrack, and his body sat in the office for more than three or four hours because the coroner just didn't want to go out there through all the traffic, and they just waited to send their truck out till later. Even that night when the guy was killed, his life could have been saved if they could have got to him, but I believe the Stones wouldn't, helicopter wouldn't take him out because it wasn't properly equipped for an emergency. So before emergency aid could get to this guy that had been stabbed, he had died that night. The doctor that treated Hunter backstage immediately realized the grave nature of the wounds and went to seek permission to use the helicopter for medevac. And it took him quite a while to find somebody that would take any kind of responsibility. And that person told Dr. Fine that no, he could not use that helicopter. It was reserved for the Rolling Stones. Sam, we need an ambulance. We need a doctor by that scaffold there. If there's a doctor, can he get to there? Everyone sit down and we just keep cool. And let's just relax. Let's just get into a groove. It was interesting to try and trace down what happened to the other three fatalities that day. One was death by misadventure. Somebody probably on drugs jumped into a canal and drowned. Two people were killed in an incident after the concert. But what happened was somebody apparently very high on some kind of psychedelics had stolen a car and was driving it through the crowd as they were making their way out after the concert. Highway Patrol estimated that maybe like got up to speeds of 60 miles an hour through the crowd. There were a group of people that had been in a car together that decided there's too much traffic and they would pull over and wait for the traffic to die down. They'd built a little fire and they were sitting around the fire and this car just crashed on their fire, killed two of them and severely injured another two. There was this infant involved but, you know, God's so uh, charitable with infants. The infant was thrown clear of the crash and was not injured. It was just a, a feeling of having been at a disaster of sorts. It wasn't a feeling of community or joy in the music. It was a feeling of sort of having endured a kind of long, tough struggle. So we had a long, long walk back to the car in the darkness of night and the cold of night, which was a kind of suitable finish for what had been a kind of, as we say, bummer. Uh, uh, people, I mean, who's fighting what for? Who's fighting and what for? Why are we fighting? We don't want to fight. It took me a good two hours to walk through the crowd, push my way through the crowd over a couple of hills and to find my motorcycle. And so I just headed back to the newspaper, processed my film, and we looked at it and boom. I had these dynamic images of the Hells Angels with the pool cues beating people up. My friends that went up there, they came back the next day and they said, oh man, it was great. He had a little trouble during Sympathy for the Devil, but you know, it evened out and the show was fantastic. 
So there were a lot of people that attended without any awareness that there was some kind of incidences going on down in front of the stage. But again, none of this came out for two or three days because mass media wasn't there. No cell phones, no way to communicate with anybody, so you don't realize what's happened for a couple of days. This is Stefan Ponick, KSAN Radio, San Francisco. Well, the Rolling Stones tour of the United States is over. In the aftermath, when there were investigations into the death of the young man, Meredith Hunter, recriminations about who hired the Hells Angels to do security around the Rolling Stones, you know, it just became, especially in the days that followed, a kind of investigation of what had gone so badly wrong. We received word that someone was stabbed to death in front of the stage by a member of the Hells Angels. Nothing's confirmed on that. We were there. We didn't see it. We want to know now what you saw. The coverage of Altamont was so strange. The killing of Meredith Hunter was widely reported at the time it happened. The big coverage in San Francisco, the front page said something like 300,000 say it with music. And the guy, he reported on this thing like it was Woodstock West and says, oh yeah, one concert goer was stabbed to death. But otherwise, everything was groovy. The New York Times said the exact same thing. The Angels did as they saw best in the difficult situation. As far as I'm concerned, they were people who were here who tried to help in their own way. That was Sam Cutler, one of the organizers of the Altamont Free Concert. And I remember as I went back home thinking, well, a lot of my friends from Rolling Stone magazine were there, and probably we would have to piece together a story about what happened. And I recently went through that. Actually, there's very little writing about the music and more about the uh, distressing events that eventually enveloped the whole scene. I think we've got one of the Hells Angels on the line, Sonny Barger. You know, the Rolling Stone published my images, and in the Rolling Stone, I would not use my name. Uh, I used two or three alias names on the images because I just figured the, I had a wife and kid, and your name is in the telephone book, and I don't want some Hells Angels showing up on my doorstep to beat the crap out of me because I took photographs of one of their buddies murdering somebody. So I laid low and wouldn't use my name on anything. This Mick Jagger, like, put it all on the angels, man. You know, and as far as I'm concerned, we were the biggest suckers for that idiot that I can ever see. And you know what? It took the extraordinary 20,000-word article on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine two weeks later to, like, really pull back the curtain on the horror show that it had been. And they're reporting on the Altamont concert really sort of established them as a journalistic voice in America. There's so much that went wrong, I couldn't even find anything that went right. They didn't get one lucky bounce. There was an enormous amount of drug use that day. Enormous. If you want to think about like the size of the crowd being 300,000, somewhere between 30,000 and 150,000 were on drugs. 
in many ways, it was hastily thrown together with many troubles just even finding a suitable place for the concert to happen. A major factor was it wasn't very well organized, so it was kind of a disaster waiting to happen. As long as you're trying to assign responsibility, let's look at the Rolling Stones. The management were hired stooges that were running the Stones tour. Then you had five members of the Rolling Stones. One of them had belonged to the band for six months, Mick Taylor. Then you have the rhythm section, Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts, who I don't think had a vote on anything. And then you had the two guys that ran the band, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. I don't think Keith Richards cared one whit about this. I think it was Mick Jagger who saw all the reasons to do this, who had all the motivations behind it, and who kept pressing forward and saying, of course we can do it, and just assuming naively and egotistically that everything would work out. And Jagger literally said, we'll work out logistics later. There were a lot of people that just you know, couldn't handle it and bailed. I talked to one girl who went home and burned her clothes. Creel Marcus, who was there for Rolling Stone, said he couldn't listen to rock music for another year or so. I think it was a horrible experience for some people. I think the Grateful Dead was never the same. I think the Rolling Stones were never the same. I know the Jefferson Airplane was never the same. I think that probably once and for all eliminated any hope I might have had for large gatherings. You know, there were, I think there were 300,000 people at Altamont that day. And after that event, I scrupulously avoided going to large rock concerts with, you know, tens and tens of thousands of people. Looking back on it now, there was a lot of trouble right from the very beginning. I don't know what Altamont was the end of. It wasn't the end of the Rolling Stones, it wasn't the end of the Grateful Dead, it wasn't the end of free concerts in the park. There was a really bad day. I'm not sure the lessons were absorbed. I'm not sure the guilty were punished. And I don't know that it had any ramifications. It certainly stands out as sort of one of the great disasters of our generation's history. basic idea of the Altamont concert was that we could do Woodstock one better. You know, Woodstock had happened in August, and a lot of people in the Bay Area thought, well, why are they doing it in upstate New York? We can produce a joyous rock festival here in San Francisco in the Bay Area, so let's do it. It's kind of bookends uh, in a way, with Woodstock being the happy, joyous festival and Altamont being the kind of rock and roll uh, disaster. Oh, it's the anti-Woodstock. It was the turning point in the career of the Rolling Stones. It was the end of innocence for rock music. Things uh, were never the same after Altamont, not for anybody that was involved in the bands or the culture or rock music in general is a kind of symbolic convergence that just is impossible to ignore the impact of in america it's going to last forever
thanks to Joel Selvin, author of Altamont, The Rolling Stones, The Hells Angels and the inside story of Rock's Darkest Day. Langdon winner, Rolling Stone writer and Bill Owens, photographer at Altamont. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are that of contributors, not of Absolute Radio. Don't forget to rate and subscribe if you enjoyed the podcast and make sure to share I Was There with friends. I'm Sophie Kay and this was an Absolute Radio production. Next time on I Was There, gigs that changed the world. The first, and up until very recently, last tour of a mercurial pop star. A show that changed what could be achieved in pop concerts. It was completely and utterly original. And that's why now, all these years later, this concert is remembered. Seeing her backstage afterwards, you know, sometimes she virtually had to be carried into the dressing room because she was so wiped out because of how emotionally and physically draining the shows were. We got an ending to it, although the worst possible ending, and carried on. It's Kate Bush's Tour of Life. <laughs>